speed with. Okay. But yeah, I was, um, um, it's an interesting thing. I wonder if, um, you know, there's this thing that sometimes happens in schools where when people are kind of crappy teachers, they sometimes get promoted to administration. But, uh-huh. but this guy had so many things on his record, so many um, reports of um, of brutality, um, just over and over again. He had um, uh, racist issue, issues, um, apparently beating a 15-year-old biracial kid and yelling ethnic slurs at him, all this stuff. And I just think, how does that person become the head of the union man but isn't that the story of everything like haven't you been involved in enough stuff where just the worst possible people make it to the top well you know or maybe not even the worst at least qualified i think sometimes in the english departments i've seen that happen but or at least yeah i was thinking of your english yeah (laughs) they're sort of pulling strings and stuff but i think i'm kind of spoiled by so much of my life being uh summer camp and victoria Right. And there, I think that, you know, sort of the best of us um, run things. And I say us, but I don't run things. I'm, well, I'm on the board, but I'm not a director. <laughs> I'm not a, you know, I think that the, the people who do that work are the most fit for it and the people that everybody agrees are great for the job. And well, but isn't that, you know, partly because we decided a long time ago to like not run along bureaucratic hierarchical systems right yes that's but anyway yeah there's tons of of good cops but a fatal flaw for a cop who is in every other way good is this sense that um you know that they're all a brotherhood and that no matter how heinous somebody's behavior is that you have to always have each other's back and all of that sort of militaristic sort of idea Well, also, yeah, the idea, you know, one of the, the sickest ideas that's arisen, and they, you know, even even my dad was telling me about when he was in boot camp for Vietnam, they do this to you, where they tell you, you're not a civilian, yeah. civilians are like this, you're this, right? And then one thing that's really happened, like I, I was talking about this earlier, with the people think that the militarization of the police is just about equipment, but it's not. It's a whole thing of where that idea from our latest foreign wars has brought home where it's uh okay you now you police you're not you're not civilians but police are civilians right yeah. police at their heart should be civilians um it's a civilian position but they've divided it into military terminology and military thinking where you're you're out in a war zone right and you are not you are not what is the opposite of civilian if you're not military but you're you're that and everyone else are civilians in it. And it's like that, even if you're, I think the argument would go, even if you're the, the greatest person and like, you know, one of my best friends in new Orleans is a state trooper and I, I love the guy, but it's like, um, you're in the position itself is kind of rotten at this point. Right. The things that you're asked to be and to do, um, is bad. Well, you know, and, and even on the top shows, which admittedly are a glorification of the police for the most part, with a few notable exceptions, uh-huh. but um, the cops that we're supposed to admire say that um, there are scumballs who are criminals and there are uh, citizens who are basically bystanders and victims, and then there are the cops who are the good guys. And this whole idea that um, being a criminal is a type of person or a kind of pathology instead of a position that somebody's in. I mean, um, I always make the point when I'm talking to uh, uh, students and different people about these sorts of things that there's nobody who doesn't ever break a law. Uh, The U.S. is is all crazy, you know, like they make laws about everything. And there's nobody who never goes uh, 32 in a 30-mile speed zone, you know. Uh, 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 There's all these different ways. Um, Let's see, there's a note from... Yeah, still got But, I mean, that's that's what I teach in when I teach deviant behavior. 
it's funny. I, I got tagged to teach deviant behavior. I've never, I'm not a deviant behavior scholar. And so I had to read a lot on it, but that's what you want to get across to people is that everyone in the classroom that you're in is at the present moment or has been very recently in violation of the law, right? There's so many laws and there's so much conduct that against it. It's not about whether you, you know, you've, you, you're doing criminal things all the time. It's about how it's enforced and to who it's enforced on, right? And, and that's how you make someone a deviant, right? Is you, it's not through, it's not through the conduct of the person solely. And it's not a product of something that they just are. It's uh, about how we can, how we decide to construct and more importantly, are equally as important, uh, enforce those rules. And, and the point I always made to students at Tulane is like, uh, is do you think there's those rules are enforced on you? <laughs> because they're not right. Um, and the way I always tell them, the example I always use is, do you think there are relatively, you know, pretty much the same amount of illegal drugs in the Tulane dorms as there are in any public housing? Not that there's public housing in New Orleans anymore, but for example, do you think there's more or less drugs in the Tulane dorms than in public housing? And all the students pretty much agree there's probably the same, at least the same amount of drugs, right? If not more in the Tulane dorms. Then I ask them, like, how many is your room going to be searched for drugs, right? And the answer is, of course, no, it's not going to be searched for drugs, right? Um, so, I mean, you, every, everyone, no matter who you think you are, everyone is, is criminal across their lifetimes, right? It's just how we choose to construct that. Well, and then, of course, the other problem that we have townships and we're so anti-tax, that we've decided that we're just going to fund local government on the backs of the poor and of speeders. But yeah, I mean, it, it's that, it's that you fund them that way, but it's also that, and I know we talk about neoliberalism conceptually a lot, but in reality what's happened, uh, me. well, in reality what's happened is that we they've defunded everything else, right? Everything has been defunded. Social services have been defunded. All the after school programs, school itself has been defunded. And then so the expectation is that the police are going to do that stuff, right? And so you say, why well, we're, we're not funding all this other stuff. So police take care of it. Homelessness, police, addiction, police, uh, you know, school, truancy, police, right? And so you create all of these masses of social issues that aren't police issues, right, at all, and haven't traditionally been, but they're now supposed to be the police to deal with. Um, and you have that coupled with the police, you know, the militarization of police, um, the kind of the racist history of police in America, and you're putting those together and just saying, uh, police do it. So when I when I teach um, in the Homeland Security Department, if you don't know Homeland Security, people getting Homeland Security majors and master's degrees are largely ex-military or law enforcement or both. And so I kind of have to approach teaching it in a different way to them. But that's the way I, I sell it to them. And I think it's true is that um, you're asking – we're in a situation where we're asking the police to do everything that are part we're a part of a city's social services and that we've decided, well, we just don't fund those things anymore, right? And so we'll send the police in. And I don't think that's good for people, the citizenry, clearly. And I, I don't think it's, um, you know, I, and I'm not going to have a police sympathy fest. You're not going to get one from me, but they, it's not a good situation for police either to say, uh, go solve homelessness, go solve truancy, uh, go solve poverty, right? Go solve addiction because they that's not something that's possible for a police force to do yep anyway hi chad we're just talking talking well actually that can you hear me yeah am i okay i I wasn't sure if i i came in late but actually that uh what you were talking about you may have mentioned this before but like they were talking about this on the uh on the antifada uh uh last i think it was last last night or this morning i was listening to it this morning um, and they were talking about how, like, it, during the civil rights, uh, kind of during the civil rights, like in the 60s, and something that even, uh, you know, like Martin Luther King signed on to this, like, they, you know, they had, they came up with this big, full, you know, like, multi-pronged approach to, you know, solve everything. And, like, part of it was, you know, more police. And, uh, you know, like, Martin Luther King was in, 
you know, he was in favor of that, but because like, there's more police, but there was also going to be equally, you know, like making sure everyone, yeah, social services, you know, making sure everyone had housing, employment, you know, healthcare. But then it turned out to, you know, that, you know, all the, you know, the social services part was way too expensive to make sure that everybody had social right, services. Right. So, so they were like, okay, we're just going to cut all that and we're just going to make sure there's more police. And, and we. Right. I mean, it's the same trade off that happened like with, um, mental health, right? Like where Kennedy was like, well, institutions are bad. We'll get people out of institutions into kind of like uh, neighborhood centers and like day, day centers they can go to. Uh, and then that way we'll take care of mental health. And then Reagan came up and he's like, yeah, actually, why don't we just cut those two and have, um, you know, a population of mentally ill people that are on the streets. Right. Uh, and it's kind of the story. I mean, I, in in academia, in scholarship, like we talk about the neoliberal turn a lot, right? And I think it's sometimes misused in public discourse, and I think it could be boring to people because we use this term all the time. But it is a very real thing that people need to understand what happened in the late 70s and early 80s, where I think it's hard for a lot of people my age and younger to get is that the U.S. used to have if not robust for everyone, more robust social services and made a political decision to just stop, um, to get rid of that, right. To do austerity, uh, to try to, that was the way to, to work the economy. And that was how things should be. And it was up to you. These things were your personal decisions. You, um, if you're in poverty, that's a, a series of personal choices. It's decisions that you made, and it was not the government's responsibility to do anything about well, that. Well, right? and above and, and beyond so, that, so many things that, that they mm -hmm. were, doing a yeah. favor to people because all of those things weaken people's characters right, and right. Uh, undermine sure. their citizenship and made them feel like they weren't really contributing members of society. And so you're really uh, doing a huge disservice to people by uh, subsidizing food and housing and one thing and another. Right, right. And the important thing, and I always have to point this out when I write about neoliberalism, it's the, you should have to understand too, is that the ideology that's espoused and the way it works are two different things. And that, so the ideology of it is that, right, is that government help, government assistance makes you weak as a person, right? And so you need to be weaned off of that. But then the actuality of neoliberalism is it's a government project that requires constant government um, intrusion and interference to work, right? Because it uh, is about the government freeing up the market, quote unquote, quote unquote freeing up the market for uh, for the ability to, to, to like extract profit, right? So um, it, that's the ideology that's given to people, right? And it, it's not the ideology, it's not as it's done in practice. But all, you know, and I think that what we've been seeing, what was clear to lots of people, and you're seeing again now, is that it, that's not sustainable. It, it rides on being able to just kind of um, float by, just barely. It can just barely float by all the time, right? And then in any way when it's exposed, it's a full-on crisis. And so we, that's, we keep diving into these crises over and over and over again. 2008 was one, and here we are again, um, right? And in one that's even less solvable, I think. And the other thing about it is it's not just an economic crisis. It's not just what we're talking about because the, any austerity policies, right? Your people are victims. People have to suffer under that, right? That's the way it works, right? And so when you hit the tipping point of those things, right? And all of those, of course, because it's America, break down along American racial lines. We know who suffers more from those things. It's not a coincidence that, uh, that black people in America suffer far more under austerity policies. That's how it works. Anyway, so anything going on that we can talk about? Yeah, I thought. Are we drafting our? Uh, are we drafting our football teams? This, this is what we're. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, here's one thing. Sorry to be late, but I had to go to the doctor in Japan because my eyes are failing me and I wanted to make sure there wasn't something actually wrong with my eye before I got glasses. So I went, I, I didn't make an appointment. I walked in, um, the whole thing took about an hour and I got my, all my eyes, all my eyes, all of my eyes checked a prescription and I, uh, paid $20 and, and went home. Highway robbery. Um. <laughs> it's amazing what social services and national public health. I haven't been to the eye doctor in 10 years. 
Really? And you have bad yeah. eyesight? No, that's not true. That's a lie. <laughs> I go every year. No. Well, I, I, you know, we're supposed uh, to be talking about um, Southern culture and politics, and I think uh, more even than usual uh, that the U.S. is showing that the whole country is Mississippi, to paraphrase Malcolm X. Um, yeah, the whole whole country is... And I'm not really seeing things everybody. being worse in the South than they are in the North. I mean, not tons better, but... Um, uh, there's a thing I was kind of interested in getting people's take on, which is there's always whenever there's um, social unrest, especially around race and particularly around the police treatment of African-Americans, there's always a series of uh, stories that get trotted out about particular good cops or particular good, uh, you know, like cops pulling people over and giving them Christmas presents, that kind of uh, uh, stuff. And uh, I think it gets uh, maybe trotted out earlier and earlier, just like sometimes I don't even know that the mass shooting has happened yet before I start getting those disinformation. uh, And, you know, one of the ways I know when a mass shooting has happened is that I start seeing all the people um, talking about how guns don't cause problems and um, but one thing i've seen a little bit more of this time is cops actually not giving away christmas presents but coming out and saying this cop was a murderer and um, uh, this cop was absolutely in the wrong and that the protesters are absolutely right to be pissed off and to be protesting and i don't know if that has happened before very much and it just wasn't in the news cycle because it didn't fit the narrative. I don't know if that's something that is new but incredibly minor now, but being played up by the news cycle, or if it's a thing that is actually happening a little bit more now. I just don't I don't know quite what to make of it because while I don't believe in um, a lot of conspiracy theories about how the media works, I do know that the media craft stories for us and they're stories that they want us to hear. Uh, even if they're not lies, right. they're often with distorted emphasis to tell us what they want us to hear. And so I was wondering if you guys know anything about that or have heard anything about that. Well, like why this time seems to be different. Or Yeah. Like uh, the, the police chief in Chattanooga who said, uh, if you're, uh, if you think that these, I think that to paraphrase what I remember it being is like, if you don't stand with these right. protesters and you think that, um, that they're wrong to be protesting, you can get off the police force. Um, that sort of thing. Oh, I didn't hear him say that. That's um, great. Uh, that's what I heard. And I don't want to um, overplay it because, you know, it's like to a certain degree. So what, um, if one, police department says that that's not the problem isn't individual cops and individual police departments so much as systemic and historical problem but yeah i so i think there's a few things there like one i think why you're seeing different responses from police forces is that they're scared and mayors and i i think that's good um i think they're uh i think they've seen that this is not controllable for them this time um I think another thing is, well, one other way I would take it is it, I, I've had to, especially lately for, for work and stuff, I have to read a lot about civil disturbances in the past. Um, and I think there'll be time in the future to consider this one. I think we probably don't know every element of it and probably some of it is unknowable. But I, I heard somebody mention something that I think is very true is that, um, you know, I think the Trayvon Martin case was a big dividing point for a lot of people and that for the young people especially young black people in america who were high school students or trayvon martin's age when he was murdered um that was a big formative moment right and now those people are adults mm-hmm. uh, and probably police officers you know. um <laughs> no, uh, but you know um those you know i think i think at the time that at the time you know especially in, in florida it was a just a horrible moment and i remember it being such it's the only time i've ever done like a major like facebook purge of like people i couldn't 
I realized I could never be friends with, even in a casual way again. Um, and, you know, in the years since, we've heard for so many white supremacists, that was a formative moment for them, which is disturbing. Uh, but I think it really is turning out to be just a major fault line in America where there are people who, who just believe it's no, that's not tolerable. It's not, you know, there's, there's no going back on that. It's not something that's acceptable. So I think that's something that's going on. I think we'll, in years looking back, we'll, we'll, we'll think about lots of factors, but yeah, there's like, I mean, I've seen like a lot of anecdotal, uh, evident like people on twitter like digging up stories about police officers like speaking out um and getting fired like speaking out like i think there was like a k like 2014 there was like a police officer that choked uh somebody and i think they may have killed them and then uh the person that was there like like a police officer said you know they should be prosecuted and the person who spoke out was actually kicked off the force um, and didn't get their yeah, benefits. Get their right? benefits. And so, their, I mean, but that's anecdotal. And, but I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. There are a lot of stories. I mean, you know, there's the, the story, I think the Boston, with the Boston mayor fired a couple of police that were seen beating people up. I think the same thing happened in Atlanta. And, and, but for all, I mean, for every story like that, you see, you see like, you know, 15 stories of like police, like shooting like paint cans into um, at people on their porch and like just spraying pepper spray like indiscriminately i don't know but. yeah it's funny when a few days ago when the minneapolis protests were happening i thought i would like to record an episode about this but i don't think there's any uh real tie-in for well not tie-in there's plenty of those but i don't know how we make this relate to our kind of purview of covering southern stories and then <laughs> give it a day um, give it a day definitely definitely is something there but- I mean, we didn't have we don't have any formal outline for today's episode. So, um, if, if anyone's interested, Matt Gates has come out and said uh, <laughs> anti-fire terrorists. Like, I'm shocked. I like, tell no, you, shocked. Yeah. I'm completely shocked, and um, it's funny because you know one of my, my formative the first protests I ever went to in my life were when I was like 14 or 15 when they were um, murdering abortion providers in Fort Walton and Pensacola. And uh, murderer, murderers, murdering baby, murderers, murdering murderers. Yeah, and I don't remember seeing Matt Gates at that. And that's also, you know, that's the political milieu that uh, Joe Scarborough came out of on the on the wrong side of. So um, you get you get all those all those figures out of it. I don't remember ever seeing Matt out about that. So take that for what it is. Um, what are some other things I asked about? So. So apparently now I'm like trying to keep up with stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff happening in the South now. Apparently Fort Lauderdale had a big incident just now where there's a peaceful protest and, and it, I'll get into why I don't always like that distinction, but there's a protest, no violence happening uh, until a cop walked up to a young woman kneeling on the ground and grabbed her head and shoved her down. And then as soon as he did that, the SWAT team went in on the protesters. So there's that happening in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, I saw in um, Nashville they finally got the statue last night. Right? Yeah, they got the statue. I thought it was the other statue. I thought it was the crazy Nathan Bedford Forrest one. No, no, no. is it the, well, the Nath- What's the one on the interstate? The weird one? Oh yeah, that's not. Uh, that's like on private property. That's somebody's. Like I think they, I think they sculpted it out of like ham or something. I don't know. It's such a hideous, <laughs> it's so weird, such a hideous statue to start with. Uh, but there's one in this in the um, um, in the Capitol in uh, Nashville. Is that the one you're talking about? Because it's like in the rotunda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's in the rotunda. That um, no, it was another statue that was. There's another. It's the one out front yeah. of Forest. So there's that and. Um, no, it's not Nathan Bedford oh, okay. Forrest. It's uh, it's another. Um, and also, uh, <laughs> they got Monument Avenue in, in Richmond, which is strange because um, that's another one that for me was kind of uh, politically formative. But that's probably because I, um, you know, I went to school in, in Richmond for a bit, and that was at the center of the controversy then. Um, was Monument Avenue, which if you've never been to Richmond, it's just a, a whole entire avenue of Confederate monuments to Confederate uh, 
political figures, which sort of makes sense because Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy, but it's like, you know, it's, it's horrible. And the controversy when I was there is that was where they're going to build um, Richmond's favorite son is Arthur Ashe. And so they wanted to build the Arthur Ashe monument. And so all of the, not want to say all, a large portion of the African-American population was upset because like Arthur Ashe doesn't belong in the monument with these, you know, confederates and then a lot of the white people were upset because they were like no you can't taint monument avenue by putting arthur ash statue so uh they managed to to tag up a bunch of those statues and then uh, burn the uh daughters of the confederacy's uh, headquarters which is yeah it um, was uh, eddie I, carmack I, eddie uh, carmack was the statue the statue of nash that's the statue that was burnt and eddie carmack is He's a famous. He was a famous Tennessee politician who is uh, best known for uh, being Ida B. Wells's uh, arch nemesis. And like, oh yeah, yeah. He he like like wrote like columns saying she should be bombed yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. Or, yeah, he was. Yeah. Well, just to jump okay. back for a second, um, you know, I saw a lot of people saying, uh, "Why attack a target?" Why attack a uh, why attack CNN? And um, you know, I said that I think that they were just in the way. I mean, there's plenty of ideological reasons to do it, but I don't think anybody. There's also a a police. There's a police um, precinct inside CNN. But also, I don't think anybody would say why attack the daughters of the Confederacy. You know, like talk about some (laughs) talk about some on brand. vandalism that sounds like it's uh, uh, completely understand. okay so i have so, sorry to interrupt you david i have a, a holy shit <laughs> moment update here for you maybe not as much for you as for chad dale murphy just released a statement Have you <laughs> no, seen this, Chad? no let's go breaking news do we play the breaking news music uh breaking <laughs> um hold on a second dale <laughs> Dale Murphy, uh, famous Atlanta Brave, um, kind of is – David, do you have any inclination who Dale Murphy is? No. He was kind of uh, – as Hank Aaron retired, Dale Murphy emerged, and he's kind of looked upon as uh, just the perfect representation of a, of a gentleman ball player. Um, very, very white Mormon has like a ton of kids, um, just the most kind of down home kind of guy and, and an excellent player played for the Braves for almost his entire career. Uh, not being in the hall of fame is a, is a huge controversy. Here's a statement. Last night, my son was shot in the eye with a rubber bullet while peacefully protesting for justice for George Floyd. His story is not unique. Countless others have also experienced this use of excessive police force while trying to have their voices heard. Uh, and then his neck, uh, Luckily, his eye was saved due to a kind stranger that was handing out goggles to protesters shortly before the shooting and another kind stranger that drove him to the ER. Others were not so lucky and will be permanently disabled due to excessive police force. Um, As terrible as this experience has been, we know that it is practically nothing compared to the systematic racism and violence against black life that he was protesting in the first place. Black communities across America have been terrorized for centuries by excessive police force. Jesus, Dale Murphy. Uh, if you're a beneficiary of systematic racism, then you will not be able to dismantle it at no cost to yourself. You will have to put yourself at, at risk. It might not always result in being physically attacked, but it'll require you to make yourself vulnerable. Jesus Christ, Dale Murphy. Wow. Um, yeah, and then he then he puts up a donation link for Black Lives Matter. Wow. Yeah. My, uh, wow. That's uh, nuts. <laughs> Dale Murphy should definitely be yeah, 100%. 100%. You know, finally, not. finally, one of my sports idols does not disappoint me miserably. Does disappoint. Not, <laughs> does not disappoint me miserably by saying the earth. I know. That's <laughs> amazing to not be disappointed by a sports idol. Yeah. So I would say to what we were talking about earlier, not to interrupt you, David, something fucking changed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether we can pinpoint what the, what the catalyst is, is exactly for that or not man thank god anyway sorry i interrupted you what were you saying oh i don't i think i had already said it basically that uh um just wanted to remark on uh burning the daughters of the confederacy out uh, uh. we also the cnn thing just quickly just um one thing people might not get about that there's a police precinct on the first floor of cnn headquarters so 
it looked like, I mean, people might be attacking CNN, fine, but it looks like people are attacking CNN. There was, there was actually, there was a police precinct in there. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. I had not heard that. And I mean, I'm not following coverage super closely. Mostly I'm uh, listening to what my friends are saying in Minneapolis, because I have quite a few friends up there and in Chicago and um, uh, Baton Rouge and various places, New Orleans, which is remarkably calm these days um, and a little well, self-congratulatory about it. A little self-congratulatory, which is weird, but a lot of it, uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not the authority on this, and I'd like to talk to some people on here about this, but a lot of that has been the product of kind of years of on-the-ground, very difficult work of the police being under a consent decree and also trying to, uh, also being able to get a lot of concessions out of the police department about how they handle these things. Um, so I don't want to give, I don't want to you say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying this is a good protest because it was peaceful, quote unquote, right? But I do think that organizers and the police in New Orleans have been effective at working with each other at times, right? And so I think what you're seeing is a product of a lot of long, hard work on the ground by people in New Orleans. It wasn't an accident. And also the police in New Orleans are used to dealing with crowds just in the most generic sense. Absolutely. And the police in New Orleans are not great at a lot of things. Like I'm very critical of some things, but they are good at being with crowds and they are good at being at crowds, being in crowds and not thinking, um, this is scary. How do we smack these people around? You know? Um, and there is, it should be pointed out a higher percentage than most cities of police officers live in the city of New Orleans. Right. And that's more true for African-American cops in New Orleans than than otherwise. But uh, a lot of white cops live in Metairie, but a lot of a lot of cops and a lot of African-American cops live in the city of New Orleans, which makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, I mean, most I mean, big metropolitan areas. I mean, I know in Houston, a lot of I mean, you can live in Houston and still not really live in Houston. Um, Yeah. Right. Um, and like the Houston, like the the police chief in Houston, uh, Art Acevedo, has been getting, like I think on Friday he marched with the protesters. Like he got in the he got in the in the protest and he was mm-hmm. marching with the protesters. And the past couple of days he's been giving these like kind of impassioned speeches to the protesters, like saying, you know, you have to respect, you know, and it's it's kind of like you have got to respect, and it's not even like respect property, you know, like it's like you have a right to be mad and. I mean, kind of almost mm. uh, even a little more like the Killer Mike's, like a little bit left of the Killer Mike speech. But then a lot of people have been pointing yeah. out that like there have been like in the past like month, there have been like six police shootings that Houston PD will not release the body cam footage. Like they refuse, even though I think they're legally supposed to, like they've you know, not released any of the, the body cam footage, you know, and then there was the big story like over, I think it was over Christmas about the HPD detective that about the, they uh, did a fake, basically a fake warrant on somebody's house and, you know, ended up killing and busted in on this, you know, this couple's house. They were there. I mean, busted in on this couple's house and the couple shot them because they thought somebody was breaking into their house and then they killed the couple. Right. And, all that but i don't know so it's just i don't know it's it's a weird i don't know it's a weird you know some people are saying well he's just he's doing it because he's scared you know talking because he's scared you know they're scared so they're the police are scared i don't know so in birmingham um protesters have been chipping away at the civil war monument on facebook live and mayor woodfin uh in birmingham has just uh announced he'll take the whole thing down tomorrow oh. well um, birmingham, i mean nice they love too. the governor in birmingham i know that <laughs> they do love the they love uh mayor woodfin <laughs> yeah, they love now. the mayor good job mayor woodfin um, and this if you if you don't remember his election this was kind of in the wave of southern elections where young african american mayors uh were winning winning elections. Oh, yeah, that's uh, right. Woodfin was was part of that. Um, yeah, so you brought up the Killer Mike speech. Uh, David had mentioned it too. I think we're going to talk about it. Uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I listened to it. I don't have it written out here, but uh, it, it was interesting to watch it because I was watching people's reactions to it 
lie or kind of right as it was happening. And it was very interesting to watch the breakdown of it where, man, I feel like I don't want to know how to talk about it without sounding like I'm being critical of killer Mike. And I don't want to, cause he, his experience of being black in Atlanta is, is, is that experience. Right. And I don't think that I can tell him, Oh, I think you're wrong about this and right about this, or here's what you should have said. I don't think that I think he said what he meant. And I, think he's a really smart guy and a really well-spoken guy and I enjoy listening to him and the one time I did meet him he was incredibly nice to me so I you know I'm not criticizing him but there were a lot of different viewpoints from other African-American activists in Atlanta about his speech and so I was kind of watching that reaction in real time and then also people who probably are more than my demographic who are white fans of run the jewels who are saying killer Mike for president. This is the greatest speech. Uh, There were a lot of people in Atlanta who are African-American who were saying, uh, you know, easy for you to say you're, you know, a business owner and a landlord in Atlanta. It's pretty easy to tell people to go home. So I don't, you know, I think it's, it, it was a good speech in terms of I think it was really heartfelt and in delivery, and I understand what he's saying, and I I understand it, but I also understand very much so why some people would say would have an issue with it. Yeah, I don't know, David. You would ask about it. Do you have more thoughts on it? Oh no, I just thought that. Um, I mean, I think it's really hard to just like you're saying it's like i can't tell people in atlanta as a matter of fact i don't think uh to break it down along race lines which you kind of have to do in these situations i don't think i can tell any black person in america how to feel or how to react or how to behave i think i can say to white people you need to not be in black neighborhoods looting and breaking shit um uh because it's yeah it's it's not your neighborhood it's not your choice in a way um but i'm not um, uh, but for me I, I think that it's hard to speak out and especially to say the things that he was saying because it's easy for people to think that that's giving comfort to the enemy because he uh-huh. talks about his relatives who are police officers he talks about yeah. um and he says don't burn things down and uh, you're burning down your own neighborhood. And those are talking points that there are good cops and that you're burning down your own neighborhood are, is talking points of white liberals who just want nothing yeah. to get stirred up too much. And right. even of uh, people who are active advocates for the status quo. And so it's hard to say those things, I think. It's hard to hear them. And not think about, well, how is this message going to be used by other people rather than mm-hmm. look and say, where is he coming from and what does right. he mean by this? And I don't know. I looked at him and how upset he clearly was and how right. emotional he was. And I thought, um, and I responded very much to that. You know, I think I responded to that more than yeah. the specifics of the message. But at the same time, I thought, um, well, you know, there's a voice from Atlanta from somebody who cares about his community. And um, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who care a lot about their community who also uh, advocate for more and bigger protests and even uh, advocate for more uh, destruction of property. And I think those can be accurate. Those can be accurate or not accurate, but valid uh, points of view, too. Uh, and I'm sure that his will be featured more than a lot of people's because, uh, yeah, because a, a lot of people like that message if they're property right. owners. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think also, like, you know, I I think it's appropriate to not compare every civil uprising to the 1960s. But if you look at Watts and kind of the years around Watts, right, you still have, you have similar dynamics, right? You, you know, uh, Killer Mike's been pretty vocal in that he is... Uh, he's for black capitalism. Right. And kind of in not, I don't mean that in an insulting way and kind of like the Stokely Carmichael way where he very much believes in, in, in black ownership of businesses and giving jobs to, to black people and 
And so if you are destroying property in that context, it's tearing down what, what you have built up, right? And so I understand, I can understand that argument. It, but like you're saying, also, I, I can see so clearly that being mainlined straight into um, both conservatives and kind of white liberals who are like, aha, it, this is the, see, he's saying the good thing, yeah. right? Everybody go home, right? Everybody go home. There you go. Uh, K- Killer Mike said it, right? You know, and it's like, well, he, it's there's there's not one voice of, of even the black community in Atlanta, right? There's a lot of different people thinking on this. And if you're going to be open to listening to him, maybe be open to listening to some people who are telling you things that you don't want to hear too, right? And I mean, talking about the property, I mean, do you know much about the, tar- you know, the big target, you know, the target store that I guess that was featured, like th- that was burnt on the first night about like yeah. that it was tar- like it was burnt, like it was kind of targeted for a reason that it had been that store was like the center of a big like discrimination lawsuit. And they had also they were like it was like a laboratory store for like surveillance uh-huh. and like how to like pick, you know, how to you know, like different methods, like, um, to, uh, like find shoplifters and, and, uh, and they right. kind of, you know, a lot of, t- I mean, I don't know if this is conjecture, but it was, you know, it was built in not a good neighborhood because, you know, that would be a good place to catch shoplifter. That would be a good place to try to catch shoplifters. And this was kind of like the, their, like training you, store. You know, uh, I think George was supposed to start working at that uh, store. Is that the one that, he worked at? Uh, it, that's the one that he was supposed to start work at um, uh, like two days oh, wow. ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Did, oh, he, wow. did, he show to work, um, did he show up to work on Friday? I was like, oh, man. Where, <laughs> uh, um, where is everybody? Fired before he ever started. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, he no, he actually he slept in. He actually slept in. It was like two hours. Oh no! It was all my fault. Uh, he kept showing up saying, "You're fired. You're fired. Get it. Get it." Um, uh, but yes, yeah, I mean, it's another thing. Like with with that with that whole thing. Like whether you know that target was targeted because, in particular, it did these bad things or not. Like the whole kind of underlying belief that people's like the things that exist in their built environment are somehow representative of the community. seems like such a weird starting point for me. Like how much voice, how much voice do people in most neighborhoods get in what is built in their community, quote unquote, right? Like how much do people get to decide they want to target there? Do people get to decide they want a liquor store? Like do people get to decide they want to have a police precinct? And then, you know, if you don't care about that end of it, right? If you don't care about that end, then how at the other end are you going to say, I can't believe people destroyed something in their own community? It's like, well, what, what did you build? What have you been, have you been advocating that they get to build what they want in their community? Because that, I mean, if you want people to have buy-in on their community, maybe you should start there, right? I mean, it's just so odd to me to single out like chain stores, right? And say, ah, oh, this, this represents a, a community and the people that live there. No, it's not. It's a way you make money off a of community. That's all it is. Like, I don't, you know, they've built two auto parts stores in my neighborhood in the last uh, a decade or so. They didn't build them there because they like me. They like us. They want everyone to do well. They built them there because it's an intersection where you can make money. And if you're in, if you're in a community that's uh, undergoing more oppression and, and undergoing more economic uh, kind of strife, they're even more doing that. So, like, why? What is the expectation that people somehow? are one with, with the stores that are built in their neighborhood. That's just crazy to me. Anyway. Well, I have to say also that um, Target, um, uh, what's his name, Brian Cornell, uh, who I think might be the CEO, yeah, chairman uh-huh. and CEO of Target, uh, his statement was in no way condemning um, looters or uh, yeah. protesters. Sure. He actually, I, if I if I read it right, is supporting them and saying, um, you know, he's 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 not making the complaint. People are making it for him. I mean, you know, he's not Target Incorporated. And also, what else are you going to say? You can't come out on the side. Right. Of, <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, another thing, I've, I've probably talked about this before, but here's one of my favorite facts from disaster mitigation for you. Okay, so Walmart, um, Walmart stores are intentionally built in flood zones. Uh, if you look around wherever the Walmart you're from, and it's because the land, not always, but they're, they're, they're built there without regard because the land in flood zones is cheaper generally. Right. And so Walmart builds in flood zones because they have whatever equation they have that they can replace every item in that store and dry out the store within a week and be back up and operating. And it will not be a dent. It will not be a fraction of a percent in Walmart's profits. Right. And they do that repeatedly. They know it. They know this. And that's their strategy to do. Right. Why Walmart builds in flood zones. Right. So we don't get no one gets upset about that. No one, no one cries about it. No one says, how can Walmart do that? How can Walmart build in a flood zone and then it floods and everything and the store is destroyed and then they take it and throw it away and they're back in a week, right? And so if people, right, who live in the area are outraged, rightfully outraged, and the store gets destroyed, why do you give a shit then? It makes, I mean, it makes, it literally makes no sense to me. And especially as someone whose job is studying like urbanism, right? I can tell you so many things that are torn down and burned down because people didn't want them or didn't care about them, or someone had more money to buy the property, right? We all know like every black neighborhood in America that's been torn down to put in, like not even the interstate, but like the, the, the shortcut to the interstate, right? Or the sports stadium. The sports stadium built on the cemetery, right? Like how much of downtown Manhattan's built on enslaved people's graveyards, right? People don't So I have a question to you that I actually I had forgotten I wanted to ask you about that you might have at your fingertips and within your expertise and maybe not. But it's about traditionally or historically, I should say, not... Hopefully we don't have too much. I guess we do have a tradition of burning shit down. Uh, (laughs) But uh, historically, when uh, areas undergo rioting and looting and burning, how often do those neighborhoods come back as strong as before? How often are they sort of bulldozed and gentrified? How often Uh are they... um, uh, are they sort of left in shambles? Uh, yeah. I'm sure that there's a different answer for different eras. Like in the 70s, Brooklyn was never not on fire. Um, and so, and now Brooklyn is completely gentrified. I don't know if the two have anything to do with each other. But this is but just like, do question. you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I kind of do. And so here's the interesting thing about it. And this gets to a very big division in how people think about these things. And I am probably on the less popular side, but this is a way to think about it, right? Is that, and I've seen this over the last few days uh, of people's kind of speculation about this. And some people say, well, look at, look at LA after uh, the 92 riots, right? And so a lot was invested in there. Um, and a lot of it didn't come to fruition, right? And so that's one way you can think about it. We'll, I'll talk about it in a second. You can think about it that way of is there was, there was um, an uprising with demands and outrage, and then was it able to achieve anything? That's one way to think about it. There's another way to think about it, which is each of these uprisings is a real uprising, but it isn't able to get over the hump, right? It's not a revolution. It's an uprising, and it is eventually stamped out, right? It eventually is um, averted in some way, right? And so if you're looking at the results of it, well, it didn't exist to like get concessions, right? It didn't exist to get, um, you know, uh, a new park, right? And so it existed to try to, to be an uprising. And so did it achieve that? Well, it didn't because we still have the same systems in place, right? So I'm probably on that side of thinking about it, which I don't think is the as popular side. Um, I think it's probably the more depressing side and the harder to go with side. But we do know from LA, we know from after Watts, right? After Watts, some interesting things happened. There was a resurgence, a um, kind of revival in Watts, and it wasn't from so much 
uh, government largesse. It was from people realizing, being conscious of Watts as an area and being conscious of their own agency and creating lots of, um, I don't want to use small in a pejorative sense, but small scale projects uh, for their community, which produced a lot of art, a lot of uh, actors, playwrights, musicians came out of that period. Um, I think I think people like Denzel Washington are a product of like kind of the post Watts riots kind of community theater that was going on, right? Um, and so you can have these really uh, uh, positive outcomes, but in in the whole, are you getting government um, concessions that are rebuilding areas? No, because they're subject to the same kind of forces uh, again and again, right? It's so there's not you know, what revolutionary change can happen like inside the same system. It's not much. Right. And so I think, well, and also what revolutionary thing is going to happen in Jefferson, Missouri? I mean, Watts was a a cultural center before the riots. Right. um, Right. And uh, there's a lot, not every place has the, the sort of capital and social capital that, um, um, that you find in in huge urban areas, you know. Oh man, I'm not even. I I, I decided to finish a book review on social capital. I can't even. I'm not going to delve into the issue of social capital right now for you guys. But uh, yeah, I mean that's true. Uh, but well, I don't know what social capital means. I thought I was coining the phrase, so I, I don't oh, want to no. be. Uh, I don't want people to think that I'm uh, um, uh, advocating some theory of social capital. I'm I thought it was. I thought it was Frankfurt. Means. <laughs> um i mean yeah there's a there's a whole thing there but you know you're not wrong but i but i think that's you know that i have that was a thing that happened kind of i know you aren't as on on twitter as i am and no one should be uh but that was kind of a thing that happened where this person put out a study of like the this i don't chat i don't know if you saw this the statistical analysis of like the electoral results and the outlying counties of la after like the 68 uh, uprisings and it's like Oh, it actually shifted two points down for Democrats. So this is a bad idea. It's like, fuck you, man. No one's, no one's at, like, it's not, (laughs) that's the whole thing. Like, you're not like saying like, okay, uh, how are we going to do some electoral politics on this? It's not what's happening. Right. And I think that's one problem that kind of the whole, like kind of, uh, nonprofit industrial complex has with these events. Right. Is like, uh, okay, but like, how are we measuring the outcomes and are the goals matching up with the outcomes? It's like, well, don't, you can't, I don't think you can even think about it that way. That's not, you can think about it as there being, this is the way I would teach it. There are tensions present in the society and those tensions are at their heart unresolvable for the most part. Right. And that you can stretch them out for a while and avert it for a while and mitigate it for a while. And sometimes those tensions have to resolve themselves. Right. These unresolvable tensions have to find some resolution. Uh, And so you are watching that play out. Right. And so I don't know what goal, if you meet your outcomes, coming out of it you know i don't even know if you can look at it that way um and i think that's a big that's difficult for people and i would say if you're wondering about the outcomes of previous uprisings i think that the documentary la 92 is very well done and very hard to watch Uh, it's really hard to watch uh and the way they begin and end it ask that question in a way that i think we that, that is very difficult to answer right because um you know uh these things repeat and repeat and and repeat um, because they're unresolvable tensions in society. This is my depressing answer. <laughs> well, so- well, that's another thing that I've been seeing is people acting like this is unprecedented and it's just like, no, it's just cyclical. I mean, maybe, maybe we're at a point where we can move closer to some sort of justice or some sort of um, um, uh, equality in the society and some sort of reform of our institutions. But I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, We've hoped for that because when things are as distressing and disturbing as they are right now, we want to hope. But I don't know why exactly to hope more now than I hope during the King um, um, uprising or the Jefferson 
or any of the other uh, civil unrest that we've had based in exactly the same situation. Yeah, I would say the only thing that, that, that seems to me different, uh, cause for hope uh, is better, is that um, you know, we have so many African-American people saying this is untenable, right, uh, which has been said before. And I do feel like there is, if not a tipping point somewhere near of white people also saying, yes, it is, you're right. Um, it's untenable. And I might be being hopeful in that, but, uh, enough white people who recognize that and also say, and I am willing to give up on stuff. You know, I'm willing to not be at the center of things. I'm will, you know, I'm willing to realize these things. And, you know, if that's just a Facebook post, that's not going to get anywhere. But if, if there's a real kind of willingness to do something about that, right, then uh, then maybe maybe it's different. Do you do you think it's because like um, you know we have uh, you know here like, because we're in the the virus and the econ you know we've had a, the, the virus that no one has done anything about, um, right. and we have an economic meltdown that Republicans and Democrats have done nothing about right. and people realize like we have nothing you know like you know we have nothing to lose i, I mean do you think that has I, yeah i mean i do because i think that what has mitigated against these things in the past was a widespread white middle class right um with where people might be inclined to think yes this is bad but uh but you know i have a family and a job and I'm in it, right and, and if you're I mean, if you're me, if you're someone my age, like, I, I mean, a lot of people my age, younger, even older with the economic conditions we've experienced since, since I've been an adult, like, well, that doesn't exist either. Right. Like there's no job security. There's no financial security. There's no retirement. There's no buying a house. There's none of this stuff. And so when the people are asking you to take that, that bargain, right. Like be happy with things the way they are. Well, the, I, who can be happy with the way things are? Like, how is that possible? And so a lot of times that gets, you know, in the, in the, in the way that race and class get so entwined in America, like that's the bargain that, that that's theirs. Like, well, you'll, you'll be patient with this degree of racism yeah. for your little degree of economic stability. And it's like, well, no, now let's try that without economic stability. Right. And it, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that for me, I would be willing to tolerate racism if I had a job. Um, I hope that for myself, I, that wouldn't be true. But as a general condition, I recognize it of when you take out, you're just pulling all the legs out from under everything and saying, okay, now stand. And it's like, well, it's not, it can't. Right. Um, and I think there's enough people who are angry and scared and realize that they're, ha you know, there's not really a path forward. And I don't want to, I don't want to connect something that I think is, is, is an uprising of African-American people to the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think these are different things. But I think when people were saying during the Sanders campaign, like this is the mildest off ramp that we can see for the future. Right. This is the this is like the absolute um, most milquetoast compromise I can imagine. Like um, that's that's gone and so i don't know right you, you have people without insurance you have people without jobs you have people who have loans they can never pay off and then you're asking on top of that also endure this kind of racial oppression like i you know yeah i don't know i think you're pulling all the legs out from under it it's a strange idea that the gig economy could actually be um, good for social justice in any way <laughs> by being terrible, you mean by being terrible? By be, exactly by being terrible for yeah. economic justice. Right, well, right, in order right. to, I mean, maybe. in order to save the economy, they had to destroy it. So <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're talking. Um, <laughs> well, something I'll, something I found very inspiring is in my. Uh, I have a work part of my. Um, there were when when my school went online and there was a lot of uh, sort of th uh, a thing that was offered as our mental health, like to help our mental health. Uh, we were offered uh, membership in a private Facebook group that was only uh, staff, only school staff. And that was like our mental health. Like we were we were recommended to take part of that. And uh, it is it has helped my mental health in great ways. Uh, like today. 
I saw a picture of uh, Mr. Rogers uh, and a police officer, and they had their feet like in a little kiddie pool. And they said, "Just imagine, where where are all the where are all the good guys?" And actually, I didn't read the caption. I didn't read the caption. I had to scroll. I just saw the. I, I scrolled the. I scrolled the. I scrolled past. I just. I couldn't handle it, and I logged out, and probably won't log back in for a while. But. Uh, well, one of the things I've noticed is it's just so easy for. I think for one thing, it actually is easy for people to say the wrong thing and not have thought things through enough. But also, I'm watching a lot of people just tear each other apart in social media. And I think that part of it is because, and I'm not talking about people who are having ideological differences in some profound way, but people who are basically saying you're not saying that right or you're not thinking about that right but not yeah, in a sort of uh, in a sort of supportive and corrective way but instead as sort of point scores and one thing and another and I think people are just angry and upset and also just we're all a little crazy from the um from the quarantine too and we're already strung pretty tightly just from boredom and then you get fear and anger and um uncertainty thrown in on top of that and i think people's tempers are pretty short but i kind of hate the way that people um i kind of hate the way that people climb down each other's throats rather than always seeking um, common ground with people who you can look and see that they're essentially on very, very much the same side. Well, it's, you know, it's the, it's the worst quality of the left. I, I was saying this on Twitter the other day. I was glad to see the, the worst quality of the left uh, in person has migrated to social media as well, of just like always having to follow up on what somebody else said with how your, your version was better are always having to say, well, you're almost right, but if you just thought this, this, and this. Um, and it's not that there aren't, like, there aren't theoretical differences and stuff, but, like, I mean, within a certain <laughs> within a certain range, like, take what you can get for now and, like, talk it out later, right? Like, I don't, you know, and I, um, I've been told that people have, have been overusing uh, exiting the vampire's castle to advocate for every bad viewpoint possible, and I think that's true. I haven't encountered that so much. That might be might be true, uh, but I think it's essential reading for anyone on the left to like get their head out of their ass um, to say like sometimes like you know like to move keep moving things forward instead of like ha- and and so much of it on on face like I haven't been I haven't been going on Facebook to like peruse stuff because I don't want to know what people are saying but so much of it is just like performance performance of the self. Uh, and and saying, hey, look, but you know, you could, and I, this is easy for me to say, who I'm stuck in Kyoto, Japan right now, hanging out at my house, but you could just as easily like get off the computer and go outside and do something, right? I think some of it also comes out of the academic disciplines in the humanities, especially that, hey now. that embrace this sort of, sort of, fake Socratic idea that uh, everything has to be conflict and the, the truth comes out of arguing with each other and pointing out each other's flaws and faults. And, you know, if you've read uh, uh, Plato, then you know that, you know, the, the, the fix is in from the first. You know who's going to win every dialogue. Right, it's right. not like it's an actual <laughs> conversation. It's a Plato's fake a conversation fake. that is built to make a point. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. So you should engage in it with everyone. Um, and it's not just, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to give myself too much trouble. Like you see these conversations and like, I like arguing about theory as much as anybody, but it's like, dude, at some point, at some point, who is it that says that I agree with them completely? They're like, please stop. Please stop telling me about like everything that whiteness is and throw a brick through, go through a brick through a window. It's like, yeah, it's like, I don't, you know, <laughs> well, it's like, I've seen a lot of negativity lately on Facebook. 
And I was thinking it would be nice. <laughs> it would be nice. I saw like one. I saw one of those yesterday, and I was like, "I'm done. Yeah. I can't, can't do it." And like, I started. To, I started to break a few days ago when someone wrote this whole. They they tagged me. I was the only person tagged on. I have no idea why. And it was all about their feelings about the situation and how how they felt when they saw property destroyed. How they felt. And like I just responded, like I don't know why I'm tagged in this, but this is the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life, or that I had to get on Facebook for a while because it's it's like really, it's like really, like it's not. And that's the thing that you see a lot between a certain demographic, <laughs> where the the people, and I'm talking largely about white people and largely upper class white people, and largely uh, very much in these center Democrat set, they have to tell you about how all of this feels to them, right? Or all of the, all of this, how it, how it reflects on them, how they reflect on it, these things. And it's like, man, at some point, it doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't matter to you in your life to discuss these things, but at some point in a larger sense, it doesn't fucking matter. Uh, if you, if there is a, a protest in your town, um, like ask how you can help and show up. That will do more than you sitting around discussing how your feelings on this stuff. I mean, I'm glad you're having feelings on it. I'm glad you're working these things out in real time. But like, go go do something with those feelings. Well, speaking of white people sitting around uh, talking about, hey, um, how are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Should we do the intro to the show now? <laughs> Anyway, this is uh, Atticus Shrugged, a uh, show about politics and culture in the South. And what's going on this week? That's pretty much nothing's going on this week. How are you, David? Uh, uh, Great, great. Dad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Semester's winding down. Nothing going on. Looking forward to summer vacation. Yeah, (laughs) the kids started back to school today. That was... That's good. I went to the eye doctor. Oh, are they going to oh. school? Like to going to school? Like real school? Um, Ryoma's preschool started. Musashi has school for forty five minutes a day. Like he go, they go in different groups. Oh, okay. And then it's like three days a week, and then like next week they're going to increase to like trying to do like half days. It's going to kind of step back up mm. and see how things are going. Uh, this weekend, uh, no, this weekend, last week, when I no, this weekend I had to go to the dentist because my mouth felt weird and it turned out that my jaw had decided to shoot part of a bone out through my mouth. Oh, that happens to me all the time. That's yeah, weird. That's just uh, your teeth falling out. That's Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me all the time too. All right. Well, anyway, I think I got to go in a minute. I think that's uh, good for now. Is that good for now? Are we good for now? Yeah, yep. that works. Sounds good. All right. I'm sure nothing else will yeah. happen this week, so we won't have anything to talk about. But I'll check back in with you It'll guys. It'll be all right. All right. Have have a have a good week. We'll see what happens. Yep. See ya. <laughs> yep. ah, see ya.